right, no funny intro tonight, okay? I'm not in the mood. Let's just get into it. Venice is a lagoon city in northeast Italy. Save your creature little black lagoon joke for yourself. I don't have time. It's the capital of the Veneto region. It's full of art. It's a popular tourist destination today. Okay, that's it. Okay, I gotta, I'm sorry, I gotta go. I, you got this. We could be all together. I gotta be somewhere. I got a bowling competition. I'm the seventh pin. Who was that? I don't know, but he's a dream. <laughs> Hello, this is LA Meekly, episode 7. I just watched you lose your mind right now. Summertime stroke. In case there ain't no cure for the summertime stroke. Or symptoms. You never know when it's going to hit. We figured we'd talk about the epitome of summer. Wait, who is this? I'm Daniel. Hello. Hi, this is Greg. Today we're going to be talking about Venice as the area that's, I believe, south of Santa Monica. It kind of always seems east to me, but it's south. It's further towards Central America. Thank you very much. To put it in terms you can understand. Yeah, it's all I get. One step closer to Venezuela. That's not insane. I don't know. I'm sorry. You have no I apologize. I scope of geography at all. I apologize to our Canadian neighbors to the south. <laughs> so we um, cut up Venice the way many people who moved to California did, and we decided uh, well, we wanted to talk about some things in particular, some things we didn't want to talk about. Mm-mm. One thing in particular. The ocean. So when they installed the Pacific Ocean... <laughs> Off the coast of California. The idea was to create a Coney Island of the Pacific, Mm -hmm. but it ended up being the slum by the sea. It ended up becoming Atlantic City. (laughs) Pacific Atlantic City. (laughs) So the Venice beat poet Philomene Long, he said once that the crumbs of the great American feast ended up in Venice. So we're going to figure out what was served at that feast, and how did they fall off the table, and why did they end up in Venice? Good questions that have should have been asked a long time ago when the Bohemians were moving in and, and taking off all their clothes, when all the, the piers were burning down, when all, everything was going under. And all under. they could do was stand there and take their clothes off. <laughs> I'll start with how it was formed and just a general history of everything. I'm very interested. I'm very interested. (laughs) Tiburcio Vasquez (laughs) just cut his first suntan. (laughs) Where can I catch a Ferris wheel in this area? What? You know, a place where people go on that I can murder. (laughs) Senor Vasquez, you you speak of the devil. (laughs) Yo soy the devil. And I am here to do the devil's trabajo. There's just so much California in that statement. There's just so much happening. Abbott Kinney uh-huh. was born November 16th, 1850 on a farm near New Brunswick, New Jersey. Boop. He was weak and prone to asthma attacks, but he apparently still liked to explore and exercise. He would later on in life swim in the ocean every single morning. He was a very charismatic and a dapper gentleman. He would rarely be seen without a fresh flower in his lapel. And at age 16, he went to Europe for school and ended up learning six languages. So that's just a little, you know, who this, who is this? Who is it? Abbott Kidney? <laughs> Abbott Costello? <laughs> so he traveled extensively around Europe. One of his many destinations was Venice, Italy. Mm-hmm. So bear that in mind because it might come up later. You know that it's in the Veneto region, right? By 1874, he was back in the U.S. and became a junior partner at his brother's tobacco company, where he took on the duties 
Easy. Of being a tobacco buyer. They came up with a plan that if they had foreign tobacco, the novelty of that would bring in a lot of money. How many times can we bring up tobacco in this podcast? Every time. So Kinney went to Turkish Macedonia to get some tobacco. But after he got there, Turkish extremist mobs started forming and they were killing thousands of Christians in the country. Mm -hmm. So Kinney quickly left. He just barely got out saving his own life. Captain Christian had to leave. (laughs) He was there to converting tobacco to hookah. (laughs) After this, Kinney decided he needed some time off from work. And being a wealthy man, he set out to travel the other parts of the world for a few years. In 1880, he decided it was time to return back to work and was in San Francisco waiting for his train home. But there was this huge storm in the Sierra Nevadas, and they covered the tracks, the train tracks, in snow. So he was stranded there for who knows how long, until snow melts, however long that takes. You keep talking, I'll look it up. Bonus. <laughs> it's just in. Three minutes. He remembered that he had heard of a health resort in Sierra Madre, which is just east of Pasadena. He was always on the lookout to cure his asthma, so he set out south. He was so exhausted when he finally arrived there that he passed out on the billiards table in the lobby, and he woke up the next morning, and his asthma was completely gone, so he decided that this region, with its asthma-curing pre-pollution air, this is where he was going to live from now on. So he bought a plot of land, he covered it with citrus trees. In the meantime, he continued to explore the state of California, which is how he met and subsequently married the daughter of a California Supreme Court justice. They went on to have five kids, but in 1891, there was a rheumatic fever epidemic. Two of the kids died. Two of the other ones got heart problems that led to one of those two dying just a few years later. So then to replenish their family, they had a couple more kids. Kinnies. Kitty (laughs) kinnies. The kinny kids. They had their own TV show. <laughs> I had the, the lunch pail with the thermos. I liked the Kinneys when there were still five of them. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Abbott Kinney family. <laughs> we almost got sponsored. Cigarettes forever. <laughs> brought to you by Lucky Strike. So his citrus farm was called Kinneola Ranch and was apparently renowned for their blood oranges. But he got the itch to invest in some other land around L.A., slowly inching closer to his real dream, which was developing the coastland. He was working on a deal to build up the Pacific Palisades, but there was a real estate market crash in 1888, so all these plans fell through. And then things really started June 28, 1891. Kinney and his partner Francis Ryan bought controlling interest of the Ocean Park Casino, which had nothing to do with casinos. It was just a restaurant with a tennis club. In what was then known as South Santa Monica. Okay. So then a few months after that, for $175,000, these partners, they bought the surrounding 275 acres of land from a British army officer named Captain Hutchinson. Hutchinson. The two proceeded to build up the area with places for people to live, places to eat, hang out, play. They had like all these fun attractions and everything. In May 1894, Five, the area was officially renamed Ocean Park. In October 1898, Ryan died of a heart attack and things started to get a little weird. So Ryan's widow remarried a man named Thomas Dudley. Boo. Mm, we hate the Dudleys. And this stranger became Kinney's new de facto business partner. So not long after that, Dudley sold his share to three men named Alexander Fraser, Henry Gage, and George Merritt Jones, mm-hmm. who all now had the distinction of being Kinney's new hydro of partners and also of not getting along with Kinney at all. So the partnership quickly fell apart, but there's the question of who gets what part of the property. I have a question. Yeah. I'm opening up the floor. Thank you. Okay, so Kinney and Ryan were business partners. Mm-hmm. Ryan dies. Yeah. 
So is Suspicious. no matter no matter who this woman is married to, he has to be in, par- yeah. in partnership with him. Yeah. Like, what kind of weird law is that? It's the law of Kenny. He was following her around. Like, don't. No, he's like he was his, her uh, chaperone. No, no, not him, not him. He has shifty eyes. I don't like him. He's bad for business if you date him. That's that's a really weird thing that happened. So the ocean park land that they owned, it was weirdly shaped. It extended 1.5 miles south of what is now Pico Boulevard to Mildred Avenue. But towards the south end of this, the boundary line curved inland about half a mile. So there's more land in the southern section than in the north. But while the north was small... It had all these established houses, all these amusements. It mm-hmm. was set to go. So the south, all there was was just sand dunes and swampy marshlands. It was Dagobah. It, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was Dagobah with a hint of Tatooine. It was Dagobah with less life. It was Dagobah with more Yoda. You take everything you don't like about Tatooine, you take everything you don't like about Dagobah, and you put them together. <laughs> but I wanted to get power converters. <laughs> you got to go to the Tashi station for that. Too much. That's too much Star Wars. Cue the band. (laughs) So to fairly decide who got what, since they were professional businessmen, naturally they flipped a coin. So Kinney called Tails. It came up. Tails. The three other partners, they all slumped their shoulders as their minds, they were just racing like, all right, how can we, what can we do with this swampland? How we can make our money back? Surely he's gonna pick the northern region why would he pick this worthless southern piece of land how are we going to make this work and then they're like all right what do you want give me the southern part (laughs) so when kinney made it public that what he intended to do with this land was to create the venice he saw in italy but this time as venice of america it was referred to as kinney's folly so to the shock of everybody including i'm i'm sure kinney Mm -hmm. he turned this awful piece of land into the coolest part of la he built an elaborate system of canals we'll get to that later Mm -hmm. a ridiculously vast boardwalk of amusements and piers we'll get to that later in 1904 we'll get to that later (laughs) yada 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 we're done in 1904 the short line trolley car extended from downtown la to Mm -hmm. venice so it made it easy for tourists to get down to the beach and then on July 4th, 1905, Venice of America opened to the public with a celebration. They had yacht races, swimming races, uh, war of the races. <laughs> <laughs> Some might call it a helter-skelter. There were bands playing, a fireworks show at the Central Lagoon's 2,500-seat amphitheater with a crowd of about 20,000 people. Visitors, they instantly fell in love with the amusements, the Venetian Renaissance-style buildings. So much so, $405,000 worth of real estate was sold in the first day to people just that, I don't know... Look at that swamp. Give me a piece of that swamp, Buster. How much? <laughs> How much for the bog juice? <laughs> they just threw money at the swamp. <laughs> I want you, and you don't even know how much. Within two hours of being opened, 355 lots of land were sold. Everyone just wanted to leave um, downtown, probably. It was a swamp there, but it wasn't a natural swamp it downtown. Was, it was all those theaters downtown they didn't like. <laughs> So from then on, Venice would draw around fifty to 150,000 visitors every weekend. There were dozens of theaters around Venice. It was actually Kinney's intention from the start to be a place of high culture. He built a 3,400-seat auditorium that was supposed to be like the house for poetry and just speeches, debates, opera, stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was called the Venice Assembly. Yeah. But he quickly saw that people were more interested in camel rides and freak shows. Yeah. <laughs> so the assembly closed within a year in favor of what people really wanted, cheap spectacle. Lowbrow. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Show me people we've captured from South American tribes, and I don't want to hear anything about Voltaire. You know what I hate? Horses. You know what I love? Camels. Make it happen, Buster. <laughs> so spectacles and stunts, they kept people coming. Mm-hmm. The place was still legally named Ocean Park at this point. Mm-hmm. It would cause a lot of confusion until 1911 when Kinney got the name legally changed to Venice. So Kinney himself, he was a beloved figure to the citizens. He was known as the Doge of Venice, which is what they, the the Doge, the Doge is what they would call the person who ran real Venice, as I call it, big Venice. It's not, that has nothing to do with that Doge ball. Oh, wait, the dog of Venice. (laughs) (laughs) I read that wrong. Horrible womanizer. So the people who worked for him, they had tremendous respect for him. Holiday celebrations were a big deal for Kinney. So every holiday was observed with great festivities. Kinney himself, he would play Santa every year during Thanksgiving. (laughs) He was also an active member in the community and the amusements. He once won the men's singles championship in tennis at the Venice Country Club, which is very suspicious Uh if you ask me. (laughs) But he had jealous opposition too. In 1907, his rivals at Ocean Park Pier, they refused to give Kinney a permit to build a bathhouse on the waterfront. But Kinney, he started to pave the foundation anyway, but the sheriff came by with dynamite to blow it up. But there was some women's group having a picnic nearby, so they weren't able to do it. They could shower those women in debris. Women didn't have a lot of rights back then. They got lucky. They couldn't vote, but they also weren't allowed to have debris showered upon them. Oh, that's, it, was, it was a weird Unless night. you were their husband. <laughs> Kinney ended up dying on November 4th, 1920 of lung cancer. He's now buried at the Woodlawn Cemetery in Santa Monica. His oldest son, Thornton, Thornton? Thorn, Thornton, took over the running of Venice, and this is when things started to slip. So the world, it was changing, and Venice, which was a throwback city from the start, it was starting to look even more dated, mm-hmm. but not in a fun way. The infrastructure was crumbling, and the local government was paralyzed trying to come up with a plan that everybody could agree on. That's the crumbles that you're talking about. It was crumbling. It was just of the city, the gravel, and the, the you know the social uh, social crumbles. Social crumbles. Mm-hmm. My favorite area is social crumbles. Just add the stuff that dreams are made of. <laughs> so the big clash was between the city moving into the future with the new America mm-hmm. and hanging on to their old world romantic charm. But eventually it was just too much for people. And on November 25th, 1925, Venice officially became part of L.A. and the sad process of modernization began. It was described best uh, as if Los Angeles had just annexed Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So it, it became clear very quickly that L.A. didn't care for the wacky atmosphere of Venice, and they began to systematically dismantle the amusements. Venice went through a lot of different phases during the years. The Depression hit them very hard. A lot of banks and businesses closed. Things got a little better with the end of Prohibition. There were Sunday blue laws, the same ones that created the ice cream Sunday. They came into play for a brief period of time, forbidding people to dance on Sundays. Only instead of ice cream Sundays coming out of all this, all there were were just failed business Sundays. (laughs) (laughs) So during World War II, Venice was subject to blackouts at night so that they wouldn't get bombed. So even though... During the day, they were a big draw for soldiers on leave. At night, they were forced to completely shut down. There were troops patrolling the boardwalk looking for enemy submarines off the coast. During this time also, the Japanese people who farmed the land around Venice, they were rounded up in the boardwalk area and sent off to internment camps. In the 50s, the Lawrence Welk show started broadcasting from Venice. That pumped a little bit of life back into the area. Oh, God, what's the name of those sisters that were on the Lawrence Welk show? The, they uh, lived in Venice. Um, uh, the Lennon sisters? Yes, the Lennon sisters. Lennon Thank sisters. you. 
John Lennon and his sisters. Yeah, his sisters, Cynthia Lennon, Julian Lennon, Sean Lennon. And Yoko Lennon. <laughs> By the 60s again, Venice was looking run down. A lot of the buildings were no longer up to code, which resulted in 550 of the original buildings being demolished. Since this was no longer such a desirable place to live, poor people... Poor. Oh, you love saying that. Poor people what? What do you want me to pour them? Pour them into the ocean. Because <laughs> they have no money. Poor people started to move <laughs> to the cannot. area. <laughs> you put so much emphasis on this thing. Poor people. There's no other way to describe them. All they are to me is a bank account. An <laughs> empty bank account. So they started moving into the area. Amongst these people, they, they were the beatniks, the hippies. They made it the West Coast hub of peace and love and not working. In the 60s, they also saw an influx of old Jewish people who were migrating from Boyle Heights into this area. Mm-hmm. Things got a little better in the 70s when that 18-mile bike path that goes from Torrance to Santa Monica was built. So it brought more people passing by to the area. They were like, oh, I remember uh, my, my old grandpappy used to tell me about Grandpappy Kinney. Everyone was my grandpappy. Oh my god. I was gonna do a voice, but it was gonna come out Cockney Jimmy Sweep, so I better just keep it. What am I doing here? But then in the 80s and 90s, it became dominated by drugs and violence. Mm -hmm. So the constant theme through all of this, though, has been basically to tear things down to make room for more parking, which is still a ridiculous problem there yeah nowadays the topic on that area's collective mind is gentrification we'll get to that later uh-huh. regardless venice has spawned a lot of very important and interesting things i'm just going to list some stuff that we might not touch on entirely later okay. they had the venice flying field that bred a lot of hollywood stuntmen mm-hmm. interesting the owner of this field was shot and killed on william randolph hearst's yacht and the case was never solved wow yeah and really? we're gonna solve it tonight I don't care how long this takes. You got your flashlight? I got my notepad. To Hearst Castle. (laughs) In the newspaper tomorrow, two young podcasters were found eaten by elephant walruses. (laughs) They had the country's first flying policeman, who was Otto Meyerhofer. Hit wings? (laughs) He was a medical marvel. All he could do with his gifts was to patrol people. You're just a bird. You're not a police officer. (laughs) He was the grandpappy of the flying nun. He started in 1918 to keep an eye out for swimmers in trouble. Also interesting, he was killed in a plane crash a few years later. To link this back to the food episode, there's rumors, I can't confirm it, because we didn't know where Orange Julius, the original location, started. Supposedly, it started in Venice. We don't know. Several NBA players came from the basketball courts that are on the beach. Mm -hmm. Muscle Beach and the Gold's Gym has been called the mecca of bodybuilding. Arnold Schwarzenegger's acting career started out by being seen there, as were the North Hollywood Shootout Boys. Their Mm. career started there. The Venice Breakwater is a world-renowned surfing spot. The Venice water polo team went to the Hitler Olympics in 1936. <laughs> Hitler Olympics. Yvonne DiCarlo, Ooh, a.k.a. Lily Munster, got her start in one of the Venice Mardi Gras beauty competitions. Really? There used to be a dance hall that could fit 800 dancing couples. Mm-hmm. Nude sunbathing was legal for a little bit before it was voted down because it was gross. There was a Venice Military Academy in 1911 at a Miller's Ford dealership. A worker's 15-foot pet snake got loose. It went into the sewers and freaked everybody out within a two-block radius. It's just a fun story. Yeah, I like that. Jim Morrison met Ray Manzarek on the beach in Venice. It was in Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2. X started in Venice, too, the band. They all met in the 
in a, in a really? Venice, yeah. A lot of celebrities live or have lived there. Julia Roberts, Robert Downey Jr., George Collin, John Frusciante, Nicolas Cage, Elijah Wood, Dennis Hopper, Wavy Gravy, Matt Groening, and Ed O'Neill. Venice is also renowned for its public programs and establishments to help out people in need. The Venice Family Clinic is the largest free clinic in the country. Do you want to start talking about piers? Abikini Pier is the first one that go up. It's in 1905. It goes from 1905 to 1905. Ask me why. The first pier was never even uh, used because a winter storm came and hit it as it was being built. Two winter storms actually it extended about uh, 1,200 feet into the ocean off of Windward Avenue, which is where they have the, the buildings, all the columns. Mm-hmm. Leads, it's like the main street in Venice that leads to everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the pier was destroyed as he was getting just getting into it. You know, he was just <laughs> building it. It was just getting the enthusiasm, so that was destroyed. You were talking earlier. You stepped all over my toes talking about the Fourth of July celebration, which was really neat. They have pictures of the um, the bathhouse there. It, it was. Beautiful and like there was pictures inside. (laughs) There actually are, but there you know, decency, please. You want to talk about uh, they close the nude beach down and how disgusted you are. Now you want to. If they're indoors, it's okay. (laughs) I get the best pictures indoors. So then he began building uh the what he called the Abikini the new pier, which was new pier or nude pier. Uh, Because frankly, he's a little freaky. Well, he didn't call it either one of those. He just called it the Abikini pier, but it was the new one. Again, new or nude. (laughs) I need to know. (laughs) (laughs) The Abbott Kinney Pier, the new one, like new wave, you know, had an auditorium at a dance pavilion where later in the Depression they would have dance marathons, like the one you've seen in uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which we always romanticize, like, oh, they did the jitterbug for two hours and went home. No. (laughs) They wanted to eat. They had several different types of fun houses. They had something called the uh, Virginia Reel, which was this. There was a track with a tub, and you sit in the tub, and it kind of, like, spirals and goes around. I've seen pictures. It looks really neat. A roller coaster? No, it was slow moving, so it was boring. (laughs) They had a tea garden. They had so a, like a Disneyland roller coaster. Exactly. It's like a it's a small world without any of the uh, surrounding areas, without the world. It's it's a small world without the world. <laughs> it's a small. <laughs> it's a small. 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 Winter storm. <laughs> <laughs> they had a zoological garden on the pier. They also had a roller rink, and in the center of the roller rink, they didn't have it filled in. So the roller rink, uh, you rolled around. What it was just an open. You get a look into the ocean. Ugh. I know it's kind of weird, right? I don't like, wh- that's a horrible idea because nobody who goes on roller rinks knows how to roller. How many people fell into the hole? But it was it was protected. You just look uh, into it. Oh, you're just thinking of a hole. Yeah, yeah. It had a, It was the center. You could look down, but it wasn't like I don't understand. They had the a concept. barrier. Okay, your shoes, but they have wheels like a car. Is it have an engine? I don't understand. Oh, a pier. <laughs> they had a bowling alley. They had a child care center called a baby bank. You know, uh, you know what? I heard about the baby bank. Did you? Yeah. Are you sure you're not thinking about the incubators? Because that's not something else. No. Okay. I don't know what that is. Let's go to the baby bank and make a withdrawal. There's a blind man named Edward August who had an observation tower, I believe, above the, uh, the the zoological garden. And you could look out into the ocean and stuff. There's an ostrich farm there. They also had an aquarium that sold fresh fish. Fresh fish. For eat or? Yeah, both. It, it it had fresh fish they could check it out and then it also served it. Oh, you like that one? <laughs> How much do you like it? <laughs> they also had some cultural exhibits. They had the American Indian Village where you get to see life in a teepee. There was a French woman who embroidered your initials into like a lace-trimmed handkerchief. In 1915, entrepreneur Louis Klein uh, built a concession that represented the sinking of Lusitania, which happened only like it only happened like 
days before he actually <laughs> built the concession of, of it. He like, knew. This, like it was still sinking and he was building <laughs> the concession of it. <laughs> Kenny knew that he needed a fishing pier and an entertainment area because all seaside resorts had one. And it was one of his first contracts that he arranged was having a pier. It's funny that like, I keep thinking like, I can't even imagine what these piers look like. Santa Monica has a pier, you know. I know. They but have a big pier. They do have a big pier, but there's so much uh, ocean. There's so much <laughs> land. There's just Santa Monica Pier, and then, like, the next one is, like... Redondo, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Redondo has a big pier, too. They have one of the... I'll bring it up later, but it's called a horseshoe, where it connects two ends, so you walk from one side uh, to the other. But uh, why aren't there more piers? There should be a lot of there piers. Should be, yeah, there should be a lot of piers. We should be living on the ocean by now. I keep saying that. International waters. International waters. International waters. I keep saying that to you. So his vision of an amusement pier wasn't realized until 1909. The aquarium opens in January of that year. It contains 48 glass tanks with the freshest collection of marine specimens from the Pacific. And it has a sunken seal tank. In the entrance for this, there's like a seal that does tricks for everybody. Step right up, the seal would say. Step right up. <laughs> They trained him to say that. A year later, January of 1910, the uh, L.A. Thompson Company announced they'd construct a one-and-a-half-mile scenic railroad behind the dance hall in the pavilion. The L.A. Thompson Company comes back a lot. They, them, and then um, Pryor and Church. I forget their first name. Tom, Tom Pryor and something Church. Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor and uh, Church, the church, the band from the 80s. Kinney around this time adds a, a, a dental carousel. He adds a Hayes attraction, which was a... A play on something that was on the uh, oceanfront walk. It, it was a, it was a walking uh, trip through hell. It was like a, a, one of the original. <laughs> Sounds lovely. I know I forgot the name, but it was a walking thing. Like it was like skeletons and coffins. It was like a, 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 a what are they called? Uh, a spooky a house spook- or fun house or no, whatever. A haunted house. Sure, a haunted a house house. amusement thing. Yeah, it was like a predecessor to that. Instead of like being on a little track, you mm-hmm. just walk through it and stuff. Oh, that's worse. They had a Japanese tea house, and they had an ocean and restaurant. And they also, at this time, began to widen the pier to make more room for attractions and to lessen congestion that was going on. 1911, they had a Ferris wheel, which came from Seattle's Yukon Pacific Exposition. They opened the automobile races attraction next to that, along with a rapids ride, which was just like a long slide. It was sort of like a... It was a tunnel of love thing, and then they eventually hooked it up to another ride. So it's a tunnel of love, and then there's a drop at the end. (laughs) (laughs) And then it drops right into Hades. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real representation of love right there. Now, there was an attempt to build an airplane ride. The original plan was to have a 10-passenger airplane and have it travel on a like a cable that that goes above everything. Mm-hmm. Now, where are they going to attach the cable? They had they had it to the sun, of course. It was <laughs> <laughs> supposed to go from like the top of one of the attractions to the top of another one and go like oh, across or something like that. Safe. Everyone it just was, hitches a ride on the it was, flying policeman. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you on the ride. Don't worry. It's not my job, but I'll do it. <laughs> I say the original plan because it was it was poorly engineered, and I kept reading it. Like, oh, it's a good thing they never went through that. They actually went through and found out it was a, it was a bad idea afterwards because they designed it. But it it would it because it's a ten or what did I say? It was a eight passenger, uh, ten passenger thing. It would slink down, and oh, sometimes God. they said it would dip into the ocean. They had it's a, a boat ride. <laughs> it's a plane ride. It's uh, a like, boat ride. Electricity goes well with water, right? So they closed that down, or and then they they rebuilt it uh, like years later when they perfected the idea of like maybe we'll just do two people. Yeah, they fixed it the following summer. By that time, like they already had something called the Dippy Dips, which is a perfected version of that. Oh, no, so they, they got closed. the Dippy Dips. They got the Dippy Dips. Oh my god! Can you believe that? That's how one of Kinney's kids died. I'm so sorry to the Kinneys. <laughs> Support our uh, foundation. We're doing research on the Dippy Dips. We walk for Dippy Dips. So by 1914, the Kinney Company dropped another 100,000 improvements to the pier, adding a 700 capacity free parking lot. Oh, this is when they add the ostrich farm, the zoological garden. Why was the city so obsessed with ostrich farms at this time? They had camels. Do they really need ostriches anymore? Slice the humps, make them into horses. (laughs) 
I'm not interested in those either. They had the ostrich farm, a zoological garden with animals. One of them was a bear. We'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. So in 1918, they get the great American Racing Derby horse race carousel. Kenny Coe enlarged the outer tee of the pier and was able to add another indoor tunnel of love ride called the Over the Falls, a new fun house called the Hilarity Hall. Hilarity Hall? Cool. Is this all the same pier? Or is this this the- is all the the Abbott Kinney pier. Oh my god, that's a big pier. And it, this is we're going between like what 1905 to 1920 for this one. So this is 15 years of okay. this expanding. And there were other piers, right? But this is yeah, all yeah, just yeah. One this pier. is just the first pier that started. Uh, at this time, there was another two piers that were going. Okay, the um, pier had piers. 1920, the scenic railroad and the rapids ride were disassembled to make way for a new innovation, a roller coaster. On May 8th, 1920, they introduced the Big Dipper, which had dips and curbs and some speed, was mostly gravity. They also opened a toboggan ride called the Mills Chutes next to it. Oh, like I said, this Mills Chutes is what they combined to the Tunnel of Ride, and that's the drop that went down. (laughs) That's ridiculous. They also added a 1,500-seat California theater and a Noah's Ark fun house, a bug house, and something called a pig slide. I really hope they just slid pigs down this slide. <laughs> so December 20th, 1920 happens. It happens around 9.30 p.m. The story apparently is people were huddled around a gas heater in one of the upstairs lodges in a dance pavilion when suddenly a heater burst open, flames moving up curtains and in the roof. There's dancers left in the dance hall. They left quickly. Ten minutes later, the roof collapsed. A volunteer firefighter named Arthur Ramsey was on the roof when it caved in, and he fell into the the flames, and then some dancers pulled him out, and then he died later. <laughs> they cha-cha'd him out. <laughs> I got just the dance to get him out of there. So the fire ate up the Virginia Reel, the racing derby, the auditorium, oh. and by 10 p.m., the wind blowing towards the shore, oh, no. firefighters deemed it out of control. Oh. Kenny spun that to out-of-control fun <laughs> for the whole family. <laughs> It's hot down here over this, at Venice. This pier's really heating up. <laughs> Windward Avenue hotels were evacuated. Firefighters tried to use dynamite to cut off the flames. It didn't work. They did Why that did a lot. Why have dynamite? I don't know. Dynamite's going to come up again, actually, oh, it with comes the canals. Up. Yeah. Dynamite. 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 <laughs> I knew he was talking about fires. That show's really grim. The firefighters from Santa Monica and LA arrived, but nothing could really be done until about 11.30 when the wind shifted towards the ocean, and finally it kind of died out. The only rides to survive were the new roller coaster and the bandstand because they were closest to the uh, shore. Okay. How did the pier itself not crumble? Uh, it did. Damages were in the millions. Uh, the Abbey Kim- Millions? Abbey... Millions? The Abbott Kinney Pier was nothing more than a pile of burnt wood and ash. Mm. Very little was insured. But the pier was okay, right? <laughs> okay, I get it. It's all burnt wood, but the pier was all right. I keep asking, like, they had a baby bank and they had a... Oh, my God, the baby but bank. But it was it was. It was they had nice. to empty the vaults. Did they empty the vaults in time? What about the zoological garden? How many animals burned oh, alive? Oh, God. Anyways, very little was insured, uh, and Christmas was five days away. December 20th, 1920. At Bikini Pier, Burns Dam. We got to backtrack a little. We're going to talk about Fraser's Million Dollar Pier. Do you know who Fraser is? Crane. Thank, good job. I don't know what to do with all this toss-scallid <laughs> and scrambled <laughs> toss-scallid. You're knocking it out of the park like usual. Alex Frazier is one of the three guys from the Ocean Park Gentlemen. Oh. Alex Frazier. I don't remember what names I said. <laughs> oh, you mean the friend of Henry Gage and George Mary <laughs> They opened their own pier to rival Abbott Kinney's pier because he so, was kicking their ass. So this was in uh, Ocean Park that this is Yeah, okay. Yeah, th- th- this one's in Ocean Park. The years for this one are 1911 to 1912. Okay. It opens on June 17th, 1911. It features a Dan Hall, a carousel. 
a Crooked House, which was a fun house, <laughs> Grand Canyon Electric Railroad, and the Starland Vaudeville Theater, which I've seen a lot of pictures of. And it also had a Panama Canal exhibit. <laughs> it had something called an exhibit called Infant Incubators, where <laughs> premature babies were displayed and cared for. What? Yeah. Whose babies were they? I, that's what I, I'm curious. They didn't. I, apparently, they didn't have hospitals to do this job at the time, like to care for premature so babies. They, so they put them on display. Let's charge admission. <laughs> that is weird. It is. Isn't that kind of weird? That's more than kind of weird. It's uh, ghoulish. Perfect word. Ghoulish. It, it's funny how over at Ocean Park they're exhibiting uh, sickly babies, <laughs> while over at wonderful Venice of America, they they just put them in a bank. <laughs> They're just possessions. It's currency down here. That'll be three babies. <laughs> Kinney's old rival, Alex uh, Frazier, decided to build his own pier to outdo Kinney's pier, and he would do it in Ocean Park. He created the Frazier Million Dollar Pier Company with the intent of creating the world's largest amusement pier. The pier would be um, 300 feet wide, and it would be a horseshoe pier like the one in Redondo Beach, which connects two sides together. It would be connected from Pier Street to Marine Street, and it would extend uh, 1,000 feet into the sea. The pier was also uh, to be reinforced against strong winds, which destroyed Abbot Kinney's first pier. So at least they're learning something. They began building the Dragon Gorge Railroad, the House of Mystery, and the Auto Maze, like the automobile maze. There was also an ornate carousel, and there was a casino, too. A casino was on the shore, just like the last one. The Grand Canyon Scenic Railroad was the first attraction to open. It was a roller coaster in, in nature with dips and inclines, but it was also like a fast ride. So it was a fast ride on a short track. So they had to extend the track because it was over far too quickly. Isn't that I think. saying, go take a fast ride on a short track? <laughs> it's what they mean. <laughs> Enjoy yourself is what they mean. The official opening date was June 17, 1911. A lot of concessions weren't open by this time, but uh, just to prepare, they got rid of a lot of scaffolding and just like painted some stuff on this to make is it look... The, this is still the Ocean Park period. Yeah, this is Fraser's Million Dollar period. We're talking about Venice. I mean, eventually... They start building on each other's land and not realizing that mm. they're doing that. That's okay. why all the piers are kind of associated. Tens of thousands attended the two-day opening event. Official ceremonies were held in the spacious 125 by 185 dance hall that they built, which was actually really big. They watched vaudeville that night at the Starland. They rode the rides. They checked out exhibits. They had the Crooked House up, up at the time, a fun house called the City Jail, where you have to escape from jail. <laughs> that does sound fun. Doesn't it? Exhibit called The Third Degree, which displayed paraphernalia used in secret society initiations. Later in the Do fall- Do they have any uh, premature babies? They had at least one. You've been in a secret society before. Shh. Cut the baby. 1912, in September, eight years before Kinney's Pier fire, the Fraser Million Dollar Pier uh, goes aflame. Smoke was seen coming from the casino. I guess somebody must have been on fire, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. <laughs> It doesn't make sense because they were not gambling. Somebody apparently has tossed a cigarette in the bedding of, like, the... They had Japanese servants who lived, like, in the basement. And apparently there was just, like... They, so someone threw a cigarette in the Japanese in the, bedding servant? Take that, they said to him, they said. Again, a coastal breeze fanned the flames. There were still a lot of visitors on the pier when the fire broke out. The fiery casino on the shore was blocking one of the exits. So everyone, like, on that side had to run all the way to the other side. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were leaping off of the pier. Many escaped by boat. Frazier was one of those with his son left by boat. A courageous policeman risked his life saving two little girls. They had, they had a jump to safety and his like face and hands were really badly burnt. The fire spread to uh, the Dragon Gorge. Ironic. Burned 200,000 in uninsured structures. The fire spread to the oceanfront walk. So some of the buildings on the actual shore were had to be evacuated because they were burning. They consumed an entire business district, which is five blocks. Five blocks on fire. God. They used dynamite to create a fire break. <laughs> I know, and wind shifted eventually. Fight fire with dynamite. <laughs> so three hours and 35 minutes, $2 million was lost. Should have called it the $2 million pier. 
700 firefighters from 12 different fire companies. Two people died, several missing, several injured. The pier was completely destroyed. So I guess that answers my question of why there aren't more piers off the coast. Yep. The Fraser Pickering Pier, because he rebuilt it. A year later. This is still Ocean Park? This is still Ocean Park Pier. (laughs) Where's Venice? We're getting back to it. (laughs) Take me back to Venice. (laughs) Fraser has another chance. We're going to give him another chance, and then we'll get back to Kinney, who's dead, who died. Is Fraser still alive? Oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't mention that. um, Kinney was dead. He didn't get to see his his masterpiece burn. His son did, though. Oh, that's too bad he didn't get to see his life's work crumble. What a shame. So a year later, they were already in talks of rebuilding the amusement pier and eventually became the highest priority. It was delayed because the city of Santa Monica claimed that they owned 42 feet of Fraser's beachfront area at Pier Avenue, which Fraser had earlier given them. He had given them an amusement just to like sewer drainage or whatever, and now they wanted to claim that. So they wouldn't let him build. Eventually, all Fraser had to do was just make the entrance a little further out, and then he got what he wanted. <laughs> Fraser like wanted to leave, like he was packed and ready to go because he lost like a million dollars in the last fire. He was ready to go, which is why it's called the Fraser Pickering Pier because eventually he sells it to a guy named Ernest Pickering. So after the fire, after all the trouble with Santa Monica, Fraser's packed. He wants to go to Panama. I guess he watched that Panama Canal exhibit a little too much <laughs> and wants to go to Panama now. Uh, but eventually, the the local businesses got him to stay, and he decided he wanted to rebuild the pier, make it made out of steel, uh, fireproof the grounds that would be on, make it concrete, and made it steel, which would pretty basically just make it indestructible to fire. In the ocean. In the ocean. A concrete steel structure stretching out into the ocean. Yeah, like a prison, like Alcatraz. <laughs> he planned to make it 280 feet wide, 1,000 feet long, and again, he wanted to make it a horseshoe. Ernest Pickering, who ran the state amusement... Because horseshoes are good luck. <laughs> Ernest Pickering, who ran the state amusement co, signed a lease term to operate the amusements. He would eventually inherit the, okay. the pier. Many amusements were rebuilt with a simpler and broader pier design so they could be put up faster. The 200 by 230 dance hall was rebuilt really quickly, as were bowling alleys and billiards room. The Parker Carousel was rebuilt, the Crazy House, the Crooked House, a roller rink, the baby incubators were back. Oh, no. They had something called a Puzzle Town, something called a uh, Mystic Maze. It was slow for like a year or so, not there because there wasn't a lot of thrill rides. It was mostly just exhibits and come check this out. Eventually, they start putting more rides once they get more confident in the pier. Mm-hmm. Santa Monica eventually backs off in 1914. And so at that point, they get able to build a casino back right at the ocean front walk. And they got a lot of promoters to help uh, pay for like thrill rides and stuff. So they have the Ben-Hur Racer, which looks really neat. They had a three-in-one big racing coaster project put together. It was just like three tracks put together. It was... Mm-hmm dangerous oh, they had a large bandstand they had their own carousel eventually they built a 75 feet high coaster that extended like i think 200 feet out into the ocean which is you know it's, it's safe as it can be a fire breaks out in the dance hall <laughs> at about 1 a.m just after christmas 1915 it destroys the pioneer- christmas is not kind to them. no it's funny that christmas is the cause of so many fires and the strange thing is kenny was always going around dressed as santa claus <laughs> <laughs> it destroys the pioneer bowling alley the eskimo village they had an exhibit called paris by night the fire destroyed the, the eskimo, eskimo village. village oh my god their number one weakness who would have thought that they have a- <laughs> houses made of ice could go up so quickly they have a thousand words for snow but only one word for fire Half of the Ben-Hur racer ride was destroyed. Many concession stands were destroyed before the fire brigade was able to put it out. This one, actually, wind didn't have a lot to do with, luckily. Construction persevered, and a temporary dance hall was built. In the meantime, 
By Easter 1916, a permanent dance hall was built. So a fire pretty much destroyed a, a large portion of the new pier they were building, and then they just kept going, just kept constructing, because apparently a, a fire is an un- less than enough for anybody around here. <laughs> the land between the two pier entrances was leased to um, Tom Pryor and Fred Church, who, who built amusement stuff. They come up a lot in the story of Pryor and Church. They built something called the Great American Racing Derby, which I mentioned before. It's an inner track, which is just a regular carousel, and then the outer track, I think, is 72 feet diameter with 40 racing horses grouped in 10 distinct races. They were set in six feet long tracks and would move on rotation with the ride. The winner of this would get a free repeat ride. Did you know that they're not real horses? Because I didn't know that until I found a picture of it. Because this, reading this article never says that they're model horses. So Ernest Pickering gets the pier in 1919 and goes east to get ideas for new amusement parks. He probably goes to like Coney Island and, and um, Atlantic City. In 1920, he comes back. Major construction begins in what is now known as the Pickering Pier. He doubles the size of the pier and adds thrill rides. He has the Blarney Racer on the side of the old Ben-Hur ride. It wasn't very fast and he never made his money back for that one. The Monkey Speedway auto races. Ye old Red Mill boat ride was like a love, a love boat situation. Oh. Oh. Oh, I like that. The Love Boat? It was, they made a show about it. I love the name for this dance hall. They rebuilt and enlarged the new Cracker Jacks Dance Hall. Isn't that neat? <laughs> Cracker Jacks Dance Hall. They added a captive airplane ride, which is the same as the, those, the, the uh, one that used to slink. But Because it works so well. Yeah, the other one. exactly. They added their own carousel. They had something called Over the Rockies Ride, which is like a, it's sort of, I always think when I read some of these rides, I compare them to Disneyland rides. It's sort of the, um. Big Thunder Mountain. No okay. loops, it's just fast and it has a fast. setting. They also had a shooting gallery, something called the Bug House. Opening day for Pickering Pier was June 18th, 1920. Uh, 25,000 people showed up on Saturday, 60,000 showed up on Sunday. Business was really good. In 1921, Ocean Park got some new investors who put $25,000 into the new pier. They created the Dome Dance Pavilion. That opened in 1922. It was 800 feet long, 225 feet wide. So it was a big dance hall. By that time, they had a roller coaster called the Zip, the Dodgem, the Caterpillar. No pictures exist of these things. It's the picture of a caterpillar. (laughs) The caterpillar. Come and visit before he goes butterfly. Between 1922 and 1923, he added only a few rides, the Witching Waves and the Double World. He began construction um, with the help of Pryor and Church again to create a twisted roller coaster and opened on Memorial Day. It had a 55 degree drop and it went 85 feet high. Really terrifying at the time, I'm sure. 1922. It's pretty scary. It was more terrifying than anything on the Venice Pier, basically, because that had burned down, so they really knew what scary was. Uh, It didn't have a long life because because a fire broke out <laughs> on January 6, 1924, spreading from the kitchen of the Ritz Cafe and attacking the entire pier very quickly. Very quickly, the entire pier. Luckily, it didn't spread to the oceanfront walk, and it stopped at the Dome Theater and was contained around like 1145. $2 million was lost, and only $100,000 of that was insured. The Rosemary and the Dome Theater were destroyed. Concessions and the attractions were destroyed. All that remained was a new Great Dipper roller coaster that they just put in all these um you know you have your Fraser million dollar you have the pickering you have ocean park ocean park eventually becomes pacific ocean park which is renowned uh as being a, a big venice attraction like all my family that grew up in venice was like oh yeah we used to go there when we were kids so people in venice might not distinct ocean park from venice because they all went to this place. So two weeks after the pickering uh pier fire the venice investment co and the west coast theaters buy the Ernest pickering property for $2 million, and he happily takes it because he just lost $2 million. <laughs> so he just ups and leaves with that money. They had to once again fight off the city of Santa Monica who planned auctioning off the land. 
the Venice Investment Co. outbid everyone and agreed to pay $2,000 a month, which was a lot at the time, and would uh, plan on rebuilding the pier at $3 million. By fall, 200 men began working on the new pier, which would be about 960 feet long, 270 feet wide, and made of beautiful concrete. (laughs) (laughs) Imported. Imported concrete. The deck was also fireproof, and the entire pier was reinforced by steel. Eight fire hydrants were connected to a 200,000-gallon water tank, which was placed by the Dome Theater. They opened amusements as they continued constructing. June 27, 1925, the Egyptian Ballroom opens, and it's it's a replica in miniature of uh, the Temple of Ramses, which is <laughs> Ramses II, which to is... To scale. To scale. That had a live orchestra, and then like they had a pit in the center of the dance hall, which is really neat, because you could they dance around. They have their pits. They have their pits. It's the pits. Some days later, Jones's Fun Palace, which was on the actual ocean walk front open, and it was just like a kid's area. They had like slides and rotating barrels and like a small roller coaster. They had a carousel. By the time opening day happens in August 1925, they have a lot of exhibits and rides. So they have the Egyptian ballroom. They have a 75-foot high boy roller coaster. High boy's going to come back a lot. They had an aerial swing. They had speedboats. They had flying planes. The Tunerville Funhouse, which I found a picture. It looks really neat and scary. They had another carousel, which was really big. They had a 150-foot high lighthouse slide. Let me say that again. 150-foot high lighthouse slide. Doesn't that sound like fun? That sounds horrifying. Yeah, fun. <laughs> they had a, uh, a mini auto speedway, and then they rebuilt the Rosemary Theater. Opening day also had a stunt act. Jake Cox made a fire dive into a tank of water. Really? Oh, I've heard about him. Why would they introduce the idea of fire again? Like, is people not traumatized enough? That- he would he would put on this fuzzy bear suit. It looks like a serial killer, yeah. He would then douse the suit with kerosene, and then he would hold a gun shoot the gun, and then the spark would light him on fire. That's how he got on fire. That's so much more exciting. Why wasn't that in my... Wow, really? Yeah. They gotta bring that act back. How did it turn out? Did he burn a pier down? <laughs> He's been uh, practicing on all the piers before this. <laughs> this pier progresses well into the late 20s. In 1927, they add a whip and scooter ride. They have a freak slideshow. Uh, they, again, they have a captive airplane ride. They have an exhibit called the Underworld Waxworks. And it has scenes like a Chinese opium den, a wedding showing slave girls and their tong hatchet men, a Sing Sing prison electrocution, Brooklyn black hand kidnapper in action, crime and Parisian scenes, and many torture and decapitation scenes. Okay. In 1929, they poured a lot of money into improvements and new attractions, one of which was a $150,000 shoot the shoots ride, which actually looks really neat. It looks like one of the, like a potato sack ride, but it's, it's a water ride. It's the highest amusement shoot slide and the only one ever built on a pier. So this is what it is. A very long slide and what could be described as like a flat bottom boat. It's just like a like a flat slider thing. It's a 120 foot high, 30 degree slope into a three foot pool of water. Like you just a long slide of water and you hit and you dunk it. It's like Raging Waters ride. And the pool contains 150,000 tons of water. So it's just a big slide. They also added a Ferris wheel and an aero glider. The Fun Palace, which originally opened, turned into a roller rink. The Joneses fun palace for kids turns into a roller rink then the depression hits as we all know this time it always hits it always hits us when we least expect it but we get out of it because you know guns are expensive and this time the piers both the the new venice pier which would open which we'll get back to and the ocean park pier they took it really hard the great dipper roller coaster was shut down things got better when the pacific electric trolley uh reduced the like you said before reduced the prices from 50 cents to 35 cents it brought a little more traffic in in 36, they added a reptile garden. They added a, uh, 
a waltzer uh, ride, which I guess it does like it does the waltz like a car- like a carousel, I imagine. They added a few new rides as well as a, a fun and movie land ride for kids. Mm. The Egyptian dance hall uh, became the Sportland Arcade in '39. Around this time, like World War II was hitting, like you like you mentioned before. But during this whole time, there wasn't a lot of additions, mostly just switching of spaces. They'd like take a ride and revamp it. It would be the same ride, but they would like they'd add a new theme to it, basically. So not a lot really happened. The shoots the shoots ride closed permanently after an accident on the ride. Uh, caused a casualty a little boy stood up and fell off the boat dead <laughs> harry cooper's kitty town opened in that spot later kitty kitty no kitty? not kitten Uh-oh. child uh, harry cooper's next. child next. town opened in that spot later it had a mini roller coaster an airplane and like several little small kitty rides business waned out <laughs> business waned however because tvs hit home so kids stayed home Cars were becoming more popular than like the trolley, so they started going other places where I'll they could. In 1956, CBS and the Alley Turf Club that came from, I believe, Santa Anita, decided to convert the pier into a $10 million amusement park that was supposed to compete with Disneyland. Basically, they wanted to still uh, bliss this away from Orange County. Ask me how that turned out. <laughs> Fire. The pier closes after Labor Day. They throw all their white pants away. They throw it into the ocean. And they get the best amusement park designers and Hollywood's uh, special effects guys to come in and create this. It would open in 1958 as Pacific Ocean Park. P.O.P., they called it. This is on topic. Ocean Park is not Venice. It's on topic. You'll find out. People from Venice consider P.O.P. to be the park they all went to. Tell us to the books. So we're going to talk about the Venice Amusement Pier now. we got to go back from 1958 all the way to back to 1921. It's a year later after uh, Kinney's Pier fire. Kitty? <laughs> it wasn't long after that pier uh, burnt down that Thornton Kinney wanted to revamp and redo the pier again because that was a big source of income for him. Uh, although he had trouble financing, he began planning a new pier with Pryor and Church, who were the amusement planners. Everywhere. In early February, they began using rail cars to haul debris away, and by April, the last of the fire wreckage was out. Then in May, there was a worker strike, and that slowed them down, but it got settled really quickly, so they got back on task. The new pier would be 1,200 feet long and 525 feet wide. They put a new dance hall together really quickly, another large orchestra pit. Many of the rides and concession operators from the original pier leased the same space onto Kinney's new pier. The ship cafe was built even larger. They had the Denzel uh, carousel back, the Noah's Ark ride. The Great American Racing Derby was back. They had the captive airplane, which was not dipping into the ocean now. <laughs> All planned to reopen, new and possibly improved. Pry and Trish put together a toboggan roller coaster called Bob's that had a 60-foot high coaster with tight, sharp turns and a drop into a darkened tunnel. Fun. Of love. Of love. Tunnel of like. Some other thrill rides were installed. The whirly gig 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 <laughs> They had a zigzag. They had something called a dodge em. By 1923, they dropped a large sum of money on new attractions, the most important being the fun house that contained... 25 different types of rides, slides, and freaks amusements all in one fun house. Apparently, in the entrance lobby, there was a stage where spectators watched women's dresses shoot up from air jets as they <laughs> weave through, like, rocking barrels that try to tip them over. That's kind of confusing. So men would just pull up chairs and watch this happen? I think they might have been hired actresses. I hope. Uh, it had steep slides, a mini roller coaster, a mirrored room, rotating barrels, spinning turntables. It had the shebang, you know? It had everything that I miss in fun houses. There was a roller coaster called Some Kick which was added at the pier's end. Kinney and Co. also installed a mirror maze, a caterpillar ride, another pig slide, something called a, a baseball pitcher, which I imagine is a batting cages, <laughs> uh, deep sea diving concessions. They had a coal mine attraction that was put in 1924. Coal mine? It's burros, uh, donkeys. 
oh. jackasses, if you will, oh. pull two passenger carts through a 550 long tunnel. You all leave with black lore. <laughs> if you make it out at all. <laughs> there was a flying circus aerial ride which took three years to put together and caused the death of a worker um, a couple months earlier assembling it. Like it had a, a, a vertical base and then you just, it had like extensions and it whirled you around upside down and, and stuff like that. Lastly, there was the bamboo slide akin to a potato sack slide, but you did it on straw mat instead. Mm-hmm. And the slide was spiral and made of bamboo. Like you mentioned before, November 1905, the blue laws are installed. They can't gamble and they can't dance on Sundays. 1927 seems like the last of the good years, though. There's this deep-sea diver named Harry, uh, I don't know, it's Berenz. It's a funny one. Yeah, Harry Balafonte. He opens an aquarium. There's like a submarine diver um, attraction, an exhibit called 20 Years in Sing Sing, which was an exhibit at the time. At this point, there's just like mini attractions and there's, they basically just start, again, just start shifting rides here and there. The attractions just kind of come and go, but there's nothing really new or exciting that happens mm. in this time. Again, the They've depression done hits. It all already. Yeah, exactly. The depression hits. No how can, can you follow incubator babies? You can't. How can you follow uncontrolled, unforeseen fire? You can't. That's the best attraction you're going to get. A walk through Hades. <laughs> A monkey zoo opens there. So they can't gamble there. So they can't play bingo because they used to bet on bingo. But there were some guys there who used to do a variation of bingo that you could play called Bingo. <laughs> it was called Bridgeco. It was a variation on bingo that it was like a sly little. Okay. It was basically the same game, but like small little here and there's that were different. That was illegal. Bongo! <laughs> when the Pacific Electric Railroad drops fair prices, business again approves. But by that time, it was already too late. Rides were being disassembled. Slightly different versions were being put up and then taken apart again. In 1946, the 25-year Tide lease was up, and the city of LA's Park and Rec's department chose not to renew it, despite the fact that it was, after everything, a profitable endeavor. The Parks Department seemed to have it out against the man-made piers that were being put up, and they really wanted to widen the beach like the natural beach. Mm -hmm. They tried to get the parks department to postpone it until May of 47, but they got refused. They wanted to do away with all like the riffraff honking tonk environment that was coming from the, from the Bohemian area at that time. So April 20th, 1946, Venice Pier closes at midnight. A majority of the rides were demolished. They were sold for scraps. What was left over, you guessed it, set ablaze by crazy people. Reading all this pier, it just, it sounds like I'm reading an arson report. (laughs) I have to talk about Pacific Ocean Park. This is the last of the Venice Piers. All right, it's the last of the Ocean Park Piers. (laughs) It goes from 1958 to 1967 and brings us into the second half of the 20th century, which is important. A lot of my family members who grew up in Venice remember this park a lot. They would make out there or they'd get mugged there. Sometimes at the same time. The interesting thing about this one is that it had a consistent theme. The incubator babies all grown up. Yeah, exactly. We got an idea and we all agreed on it. <laughs> like I said before, in 1956, CBS and the Alley Turf Club set out to outdo Disneyland. With the help of corporate sponsors, just like Disneyland had, they are able to fund a massive reconstruction, but still kept all the old attraction layouts, so they are able to b- rebuild a lot of them really quickly. The new pier was pretty massive, 28 acres. It all followed a consistent theme of like nautical aquatic stuff, which was pretty cool being that they're out in the ocean. <laughs> it was decorated with fountains and bubbles. It had sculptures of like seahorses and clams. This ticket booth uh, in Neptune's courtyard was under like a, a six-legged concrete starfish canopy. And for 90 cents all day long, patrons can enjoy Neptune's kingdom, the sea circus, and the Westinghouse Enchanted Force exhibit. However, rides and attractions cost extra. Uh, it's like going to the fair where you get it like $25 to get in the fair. You need $60 to go on all the rides. I pay $25, I want a free hot dog, and I want to go on the potato ride. 
you know, the slide. Imagine you rode a French fry into a big bowl of mashed potatoes. Oh my god! Or into big a big pool of ketchup. Oh yeah. And you have to eat your way out. Oh, heaven must be missing angels. Missing one angel. Cause what were we talking about? French fries. Opening day, July 28th, 1956, was spectacular. 20,000 people and some Hollywood celebrities were in attendance. Sunday drew in 37,000 visitors. Apparently for those first six days, they outdid Disneyland. Here's some of the attractions. The Westinghouse Enchanted Forest and the Nautilus uh, submarine exhibit was like a House of Tomorrow Futurama sort of thing. (laughs) There was a 150-foot model of an atomic reactor found in a submarine. They also contain an exhibit with uh, futuristic electronic devices and a robot from the 1939 World's Fair was there. Ocean Skyway, which was like a bubble gondolas that gave you a tour of the pier. Like you could roll around a little bubble like on a track and got a tour of like, check this out. I don't know you're going to be interested in this one. This is where the consistency breaks. Flight to Mars. The spaceship-like theater transports space nerds like Daniel to Mars, the red planet. As you're exiting the actual ride, there's dioramas of like Martians in their homes. The sea circus was a, a dolphin and sea lion show. You could actually feed the seal. It's not a perverted thing. They had a Davy Jones Locker, which is like a walkthrough of like a nautical-themed funhouse. They had the Flying Dutchman, which like a, obviously inspired by Pirates of the Caribbean. It was like a, a, like a dark ride through pirate stuff. Threatening pirates. Uh, I don't like you. They had a safari ride. They had a sea serpent roller coaster. They had a carousel. They had something called the Mystery Island Banana Train Ride. You boarded a, a tropical banana plantation train through a bamboo jungle. With I, thought, vo- I thought it was going to stop it. You board a tropical banana. <laughs> you wish it stopped there. You, you got in this tropical banana plantation train through a bamboo jungle with volcanoes and a spider cave and, and geysers and stuff. It all sounds really neat. Yeah. They closed for renovations in January of 1959. By that time, they attracted a million people, a million visitors at this time. And even through remodeling, uh, they installed two new rides. The second season, however, started to slow down a little bit. There was a decline in the number of attendees. By November of 1959, they sold the park for $10 million to John Moorhead, who raised prices to $1.50, $25 extra for the Sea Serpent roller coaster because it was privately owned, and then attendance dropped even more from there. The park had a hard time maintaining overhead. Rides were constantly breaking down, and they, they stayed broken down. <laughs> At the same time, the bohemian atmosphere of Venice was not clashing well with the intended audience for, for POP. Bums and winos and reg- like regular angry youth riffraff were surrounding the area so it's hard for families to come to and have a like have a good time pop changed owners a couple more times and by 1964 they saw the most successful season 1.6 million visitors they offered these new visitors a new flat roller coaster uh like the himalaya and the monster mouse as well as a uh, like a lot of kitty rides and stuff but by 1965 santa monica started an urban renewal project and construction blocked many entrances to Pacific Ocean Park. The general driving area was just very chaotic. So attendance plummeted even further after that. The creditors forced POP to file bankruptcy at that point. All rides, attractions, games were sold off to pay creditors. The remaining park was just like a ghost town for like another decade. And then after that, more arson fires were set to it. It was just they kept burning it. And I, I guess like we just can't trust ourselves with a pier anymore. <laughs> what is it with fire in the ocean? People just are freaking they, out. They love the contrast. <laughs> It'll put itself out. <laughs> the memory's still alive in a lot of like the many like West Side residents. I still hear a lot of people talk about Pacific Ocean Park. It's the it's the one that's closest to a lot of people's memories and stuff. The Pacific Ocean Park stuff lasted a little longer than the Venice stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was. I mean, if you just think about it, it was basically just two piers. 
the entire time. There's another one called Hoppy Land, but it was mostly just pictures. I didn't find a lot of information. But there's I first read Happy Land, and then I read Hoppy Land. I'm like, I don't like either one. So now I'm going to talk about something that's actually about Venice. Oh, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> the quintessential Venice. The thing that uh, when you think of Venice, you think of... Venetian Marijuana. <laughs> the canals. Oh, the canals are the canals. there. Let's not forget. So the canals were the centerpiece of Kinney's vision of Venice of America. They were originally being dug by men and mules, but the progress was going too slow. So Kinney, he was afraid. Again, he wanted everything to be open by July 4th. Mm -hmm. So he brought in steam-powered equipment to speed up the process. There were originally 16 miles of canals that were all filled with seawater. The system was that the canals, they all connected to a channel that led into the ocean. So as the tides rose and fell, the water would be flushed in and out and they would be cleaned on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. The silt buildups that would sometimes jam the tide gates, though, guess what they cleared them with? What? Dynamite. <laughs> it was just everywhere. Lying around. Just there was a dynamite tree. So the bridges that were spanning the canals, they were designed by Felix Piano, who is an Italian architect that designed a bunch of other buildings around LA also, to test the strength of the bridges and also kill two birds with one stone and have a publicity stunt for one of the local attractions. Kinney had the Sells Brothers Circus walk their biggest elephants across the bridges <laughs> to see if they would collapse and watch the elephants drown, but none of them did. But they never forgot. Then. There were actual gondola rides through the extensive canal system. Yeah. Some of the gondoliers were actually flown in from Venice, Italy, and they would sing to you in Italian as you were on them. Mm -hmm. People who lived on the water, they could get to their house by boat or canoe. The largest canal was the Grand Canal, but there were a lot of smaller ones with names like the Venus Canal, the Aldebaran, and the Altair. There were a combined seven districts, but the hub of it all was the Central Lagoon, which is now the intersection of Maine and Venice Circle. And that's where they had the amphitheater. It was the center of all their celebrations, all the festivities. The canals, they were just a generally nice place to, to just go out on a boat mm -hmm. and relax. Unfortunately, the canals were built with zero regard for the future in mind. <laughs> they were a sentimental throwback to a different time. Mm -hmm. And they were actually a statement of an opposition to progress, which Venice has always been about. They've always been counterculture from the beginning. From the beginning. They were meant as an alternative way for people to get around that was more convenient than walking. But an even more convenient alternative started to take over not long after they were built, which was cars. I thought you were going to say flying policemen. There was only one. <laughs> cars can't go on canals. They start The words start the same way, though. What started out as a fun novelty by the 20s had become an anachronistic and a nuisance to people trying to drive their new cars into the area. So the streets were disconnected by miles of canals. There was nowhere to park which is still a problem, I'll say it again. <laughs> Businesses just wanted to open up the city to the automobile. So eventually the city faced the future and they decided in 1924 that the canals had to be filled. It wasn't a quick process. The project was debated for five years before anything actually happened. And a big part of the hesitation was the sentimentality of the citizens there and the yeah. romanticism of the canals. The, the canals, they were cool. Yeah, they were cool. I They're like cool. Them. I yeah. like them. Yeah, you row, 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 row your boat to work. People just wanted them to stay. Yeah. The homeowners, they also wanted their property to stay 
waterfront property rather than just busy roadside property. Mm-hmm. Others just wondered, what was the point of having a city called Venice if there were no canals in it? So the indecision about what to do with the canals, it partly pushed the city into the arms of L.A., but even though Kinney had established the canals to be held as public waterways forever when he made them, when Venice became part of L.A., the city overturned that somehow and they took the right to fill them in and the project went forward. The canals were renamed. The Aldebaran became Market Street. Coral Canal became Main Street. Venus Canal is now San Juan Avenue. Lion Canal, Windward Avenue. The Grand Canal became Grand Avenue. They let that one no. keep its pride. <laughs> On July 1st, 1929, the first dump truck unloaded a bunch of dirt into the Coral Canal. A hundred protesters jumped into the drain canal and they started <laughs> digging out the dirt, but it didn't help. They buried them alive. <laughs> By February 1930, all the canals were filled with 90,000 cubic yards of dirt. They were paved with seven inches of asphalt. The total cost $691,797.84. At 84 cents. It was killer. They got change back. And here's 16. <laughs> Thank you very much. But then why are there still canals today, you why, might ask. I was asking There's you. There's still a few. You're asking me with your eyes. Yeah. Stop that. Don't look at me. I told you so many times. My eyes say canals, but your heart say canals. Not long after the grand opening of Venice of America and its canal system, the Short Line Beach Company started to build its own smaller canal system just south of the main one. Mm. So these were known as the Short Line Canals in what became known as the Venice Canal Subdivision, and they linked up with Kinney's Grand Canal. Now, these are the ones that still exist today. They managed to survive because when the city was putting together the assessments to fill the canals, the subdivision area was so small and so barely populated that they wouldn't have supported an assessment. And on top of that, the, the depression was getting started. It was just warming up. Also, they just didn't need more roads than they were already getting from filling in these other ones. So the canals still remained in Venice. Unfortunately, these canals weren't designed as well as Kinney's were. And by the 40s, they were in disrepair. They were made of unreinforced concrete. The sidewalks around them were crumbling. They were abandoned by 1942. The water in them became stagnant. They attracted mosquitoes. They would flood. Sewage was overflowing into them. And at low tide, they smelled of rotting fish. (laughs) You're naming all the things I like in life. (laughs) The canals were taken out of public use. Nobody could come up with a plan that everyone could agree on for decades. In the 60s, there was a big plan to renovate them. But for some reason, Howard Hughes took offense to it and sued them. And they had to stop. I don't know why. In the late 70s, the houses on the canals were starting to get remodeled, and the empty lots there were being built up into luxury homes, so the prices in that area started to rise, which forced out a lot of the hippies and the artists. Mm -hmm. In 1982, the canals were put on the National Register of Historic Places, Mm -hmm. and in 1983, the canals were named the Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument, which bought them more life until 1992, when a $6 million plan to remodel them finally went into effect. The sidewalks were redone and the canals themselves were beautified. Literally tons of class three contaminated waste were removed from the canals. Gimme. The ducks that had been living in the canals were found to be heavily diseased. So a duck genocide ensued and many were killed, but there were some righteous humans and they managed to hide some of them and keep them alive. Never forget. 
The canal. Elephant's credo for tragedy. <laughs> for everything. <laughs> the canals were reopened in 1993, and they're now a really nice place to live for ultra-rich people. These canals, they keep on the tradition of the old Venice canals as best as they can while still respecting the people who live there. They have the Linny Canal downwind regatta boat race every Ooh. July 4th weekend, which was a tradition started by the hippies in the 60s. They also have a rubber ducky race, Cute. and today they're maintained by the Venice Canals Association, which was established in 1976. Now we're going to talk about the downfall, where things started going especially wrong. It's 1929. It's four years after Venice is annexed to the city of Los Angeles. At the dawn of the Depression, the Ohio Oil Company brought in a wildcat well, and they struck oil near the Grand Canal. It initially produced 3,000 barrels a day of deep sand oil from a depth of 6,199 feet. Soon after that happened, oil fever struck. It was like the gold rush, but you know, for... Oil. Anything like the dippity dips? A little bit like the dippity dips. It was called the dippy dips. You dippy dip. <laughs> On January 9th, 1930, a crowd of 2,000 people, I hope residents, uh, met with city officials at the old city hall and demanded rezoning to allow oil drilling. Nearly 95% of residents were in favor of this change. Ocean Park residents weren't so lucky since Santa Monica was against drilling, and now Santa Monica is a beautiful place <laughs> because of that. January 28th of 1930, LA city planners lifted the ban and allowed drilling south of Leona, which is now Washington Street. They set up some rules, though. A maximum of two wells per city block. They only issued 15 permits. Two weeks later... They can only displace four families. <laughs> the Ohio Oil Company began drilling their second well in March and struck oil again on May 3rd. It was a small well. It only produced um, 1,500 barrels per day. By June, the payroll in the oil fee was $75,000 per week. And by late September of that year, 1930, there were nearly 50 wells in operation. The oil field was ranked sixth in the state. But at what cost? The fashionable and promising residential district was becoming an industrial area. It was noisy. It had all these wells and derricks. All of Abbott Kimney's vision of this is some kind of European Phoenician dream was turning into some like hellscape now it looked like I've seen pictures it looks like Terminal Island which is I mean it's Terminal it has the best name in California can, it's Terminal Island you can climb a oil derrick right that's fun <laughs> that's still an attraction it was all industrial it was all steam and oil and steel a lot of kids had to move schools because it was like a toxic poison air zone but the oil field was successful and it kept going like that oil company owners planned to move production and stabilize prices gas prices like fluctuated they mostly went down though but by 1932 the oil field was pretty much depleted and oil production dropped all the way down this is one of the first times that they admit that it's depleted but it's not till 1993 that they finally say okay it's capped off so that's another what 60 years of just <laughs> pumping oil out of what was once this really beautiful land it's funny that we have pictures of all of this happening you know the peers are like having fun yeah they're like hitting hard times around this but like a block away i mean if you look at pictures of the oil field it's it looks like thunderdome it looks like a Mad Max <laughs> hell nightmare. It's a hell nightmare. It's a nightmare in hell. Everyone's wearing leather. <laughs> it's the only thing that can repel oil. By the end of 1942, they pumped a total of 47 million barrels. But by then, the production was only 688 barrels per day, which is not as uh, profitable as it was before. The uh, oil diggers were unsightly. All of this was happening on the Venice Peninsula, and it was just becoming a really awful place to be, especially knowing what that, that uh, beach area looked like before. 
By 59, there was only 64 remaining derricks. Most of those got uh, removed in about 1962. A lot of oil starts moving over to Signal Hill, which is closer to Long Beach. 1963, the county supervisors backed an oil drilling project in the bay since they would get like 25 to 50 million on those leases. So a lot of it started dispersing, but they still kept kind of pumping from here and there. They had that slanted oil mm. drills coming yeah. from Santa Monica because they had a thing in Santa Monica where they didn't want any oil pumping there, so they did the slanted thing. Wait a minute. So they so Santa Monica said we don't want oil to be pumped, so they put derricks in Venice with tubes going into Santa That's Monica? That's how they did that, yes. Yeah. The pool, yeah. So all this just keeps going on until, you know, basically, uh, again in, I think, the late or mid-70s they say one more time, okay, we're done. There's nothing, there's nothing left here. Another 20 years before it gets <laughs> capped off. Ooh. <laughs> Eventually, everything gets pretty much moved. They, they keep, you know, all this money you think would be getting poured back into Venice, but at this time, Venice is still this bohemian area. There's not a lot of money coming into it. Yeah, there's money going towards the canals, but the, that's coming from somewhere else, right? The the canal money? Yeah. For the for what? For the repairs? The repairs and everything that lasted in the that went to the 90s. That's coming from somewhere else. It was it was just like tax money. Okay, I would see. Yeah. Yeah, most of the, the money they got from uh, pumping oil and everything was not going towards canal renovation or anything they like started this project for this like fishing pier in san pedro like a lot of money went towards that for some reason the beach oil field was finally depleted in the early 90s like we were talking about the oil company went bankrupt they put fifty thousand dollars to restore the site for beach use the city claims it nearly cost two million dollars to clean up the site and remove all the pollutants and stuff the, the land pretty much just got raised <laughs> to pump oil and to make all this money like yeah we don't care about the future. there's so much not caring about the future and if you go to venice sometimes from certain areas like yeah i could tell sometimes you feel like nobody there cares about the future <laughs> it is really really awful and imagine all the people who on the opening day was like yeah this is the future this is the- i'm buying land here oh my god <laughs> half an hour into it <laughs> and then they struck oil and now they're living now they could move back into the canal reverse area. beverly hillbillies <laughs> It took something really beautiful and it made it uh, an industrial nightmare. That sounds about like LA. Yeah. So now more horrible things about what, what happened in Venice. It wasn't fun for everybody that visited in the early days, specifically minorities. Mm-hmm. So segregation was still going on strong when Venice first came around. So much so that if a black person wanted to take a ride through the canals, they had to ride in a special gondola just for them that was painted entirely black. Wow. Very subtle. Very subtle. Also incredibly yeah. yeah, that's a. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Why do they call this a, a funeral boat? It was even more disgusting seeing as how African Americans were literally the ones that built Venice. <sighs> The black story in Venice, it starts with a man named Arthur Reese, who Mm. came to Venice from New Orleans to be a janitor. Another man wanted this position also, so he pulled a gun on Reese, but he ended up shooting himself in the foot, so Reese got the job. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the audition process? So he became the first African-American to live in Venice. So Reese worked his way up and eventually became the town decorator and was the one responsible for many of the spectacles that made Venice such a hit. His crowning achievement was the Venice Mardi Gras celebration to construct all of the sets and the stages for his events he would hire entirely black crews to do the work mm-hmm. Reese ended up becoming the second most important man in the establishing of Venice behind Abbott Kinney yeah. so seeing there was a lot of work to be had in Venice Reese got his family to move to the area from the south as well and they all set up houses in the only area within a mile of the coast that black people were allowed to own homes which is Oakwood 
So the Oakwood area is bounded by California Avenue, Lincoln Boulevard, Rose Avenue, and Abbott Kinney Boulevard. Okay. Among these family members to move out here, there was a man named Irving Tabor, who became Kinney's personal chauffeur and confidant. His bond with Kinney became so strong that when Kinney died, he left his house to Tabor. Unfortunately, the law forbade Tabor from living, oh. from both living in that house. Sorry. <laughs> so he sawed the house in half and had mules pull it into Oakwood, where he lived in it for the rest of his life. That's how you play the game. <laughs> so that's how Oakwood became a black neighborhood. And then in the 40s, with the construction of the Santa Monica Freeway, it pushed a lot of Latino families from their homes, so they moved slightly south to the very affordable Oakwood area as well. So now as Venice started to decay from all the oil and all that stuff, gangs started to form. In the 50s and 60s, a Latino gang called the Venice 13 formed. Mm -hmm. Then in the 70s, a black gang called the Shoreline Crips formed. And I joined both of them to get the inside (laughs) scoop. The Shoreline Crips sounds so, like, (laughs) resorty. Venice 13 is one of LA's oldest gangs. Mm -hmm. There was also a gang called the Venice White Boys, but they didn't last very long. (laughs) (laughs) At times, Oakwood was referred to as the Oakwood Pentagon or Ghost Town. There was always tension, but in the 80s, crack came into the picture, and the control for the drug market sparked a lot of violence. Some of the first violence between black and Latino gangs happened here. Mm -hmm. Abbott Kinney Boulevard around this time became very seedy. A journalist was murdered there. Eileen Brennan got hit and run there. A senator's niece was murdered there by the Shoreline Crips. Crime hit an all-time high in Oakwood in 93 and 94, and that's when all-out gang war erupted around the time of the riots. I was wondering (laughs) if we're going to get there. Accurate gang history is tricky, but (laughs) it seems that Venice 13 was sick of the Shoreline Crips having had control of the drug trade in the area since Mm -hmm. the 80s, so they teamed up with another rival gang. They hated each other, but they teamed up with the Culver City Boys, and after about two dozen murders, the Shoreline Crips lost control on the drug market, and they had to pay taxes to the Mexican Mafia. It was said around this time that Oakwood represented L.A. at its worst. It was a 1.1 square mile area. There were sometimes as many as 18 cop cars patrolling the area during the day. Things They're still not that great there. Not 10 years ago, a Venice high school student got shot to death. They had a special city meeting to discuss the racial tension in the area, and it turned into a room full of white people yelling that black people hate them and black people yelling that white people fear and target them. So they were just yelling about how much they all hated each other. Race wars, race wars, <laughs> race wars. But then just like the rest of the city, the scene is changing. The area is being revitalized and nobody can stop it. In 1990, West Washington Boulevard was rebranded Abbott Kinney Boulevard mm-hmm. to give the area a fresh start and the gentrification began. <laughs> what used to be a dangerous street of rundown buildings now has trendy boutiques, some restaurants, emphasis on some restaurants. Mm-hmm. Big businesses like Google have set up offices in the area. Abbott Kinney Boulevard was named by GQ in 2012 the coolest block in America. (laughs) There's a Whole Foods on Rose Avenue, so you know what that means. Yeah. Property prices are going up, and a lot of the people who've lived in Oakwood for generations are having a hard time holding on to their houses. The gang numbers in the area, they're dwindling, and they're being pushed into the already troubled Inglewood area. Mm. So thanks. Just getting worse from there. The gentrification, it's even creeping towards the boardwalk, causing longtime residents to worry that whatever was left of Venice 
would soon just become another Manhattan Beach. I prefer uh, Venice 13 activity to then gentrification. I don't know, that's a horrible thing to say. Well, I prefer the Shoreline Crips. <laughs> You're not wearing their colors, kid. The colors. Think of the colors. Since we're on such a good topic, <laughs> pretty much everything I got for this project or podcast episode comes from this report. From this report mm-hmm. comes from Jeffrey Stanton, who's like a, a historian on Venice. He's like, he has a wasteland.net, which is really good. Like all the books that I've collected turned out to be written by him. <laughs> There's some sentences I've just read verbatim that he wrote because he's so, he's so good at like succeeding so much information. <laughs> One of the things he did, which I'm a big fan of, uh, because I'm a grief addict, was he put together an article on just horrendous amusement park accidents that happened on the piers. And there's just headlines that he pulled. So I'm going to read some of my favorites. November 20th, 1915. Woman severely bitten by a reptile at the alligator farm. <laughs> July 2nd, 1927. Uh, horse lightning drowned yesterday. Twelve people attempted to rescue the horse. Second horse in practice dive. Uh, first horse became confused and began to swim towards China. <laughs> then be and then beyond the reach of the lifeguards. Then it turned and swam under the pier through the pilings. The horse turned back out to sea. Then the tired horse's head dropped into the water. Uh, Dead. So you're saying there's a horse carcass in that ocean that I can mm. find. August 1934, snake bites. A man in act at the beach as a crowd looks on. July 1935, human cannonball death probed. A WC filler dies in the first attempt at a dangerous stunt on Ocean Park Pier. He was hurled 150 feet into an arc and landed in the ocean. Spectators were horrified when Miller's rigid body was struck full length against the wave, then came to the surface and disappeared. At inquest, stunt deemed safe if man knows how to dive. Youth falls off coaster, 1923, stood up and was thrown out of the giant dipper at the ocean park. It was his second ride, and he was seen standing up on the first ride and told not to. <laughs> the some kick roller coaster killed the kid, his head smashed into a supporting beam. There was another accident on the giant dipper. Men in the rear catch a young girl passenger mid-air by her leg because she fell off trying to wave to her friends. Someone plunged off a roller coaster in 1929. In 1929, a woman hurled to her death. They can't tell if it's a suicide or a an accident. This was off the Highboy roller coaster. Reading this, there was a lot of accident, a lot of death from the Highboy roller coaster. I'm gonna read the most interesting one though, and I, 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 did I, I don't think I mentioned this to you. This was in 1918. The zoological garden, right, with all uh-huh. the animals, and they had a bear, and this little girl was walking by the bear exhibit and wanted to give a bear uh, some of her ice cream. She wanted to give the bear her ice cream cone, so the bear. Reach for the ice cream I've cone. I've seen in Frankenstein. But it mauled, it mauled a little girl, and it killed her. And she, her last words were, uh, kiss me, daddy, and then she died. And then they shot the bear. Oh. Who goes to a beach and gets attacked by a bear? Horrible. Don't give bears ice cream. It sets them off. That was really horrible. Uh, there was a shooting gallery accident. The operator was shot in the, with a <laughs> pallet in the base of the brain. There's an 11-year-old kid. That it was an accident. The captive balloon ride escapes from the thing and they float all the way to San Pedro. <laughs> there was a couple suicides. A woman kills herself. The waltzer. That is a suicide, isn't it? There were six people hospitalized when the waltzer ride on the Ocean Pier Park broke loose and crashed into several other loaded cars. Let's not forget that last year in August, a gentleman drove his car onto the boardwalk, hit uh, about eight people, I believe, and killed a woman, an Italian woman, on her honeymoon. Yeah. From, was she from Venice? She got confused and ended up in the wrong Venice. Oh, my God. She got, she got killed on her honeymoon. That's so horrible. Other people, Eight other people were struck. He was just, apparently, he was on a rampage and was just driving around trying to hurt people. And he did. He's in jail, and hopefully they're going to put him in Sing Sing. Yeah. Yeah, callback. Bum, 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 bum,
I like to think that uh, young children listen to this and yeah. they're all having fun and then they hear the list that you just read and they'll never be the same. They're going to go to California Adventure now and they're like, do you want to go? No. No, I'm, I'm all right. What about bugs? Like, no, I'm a, I don't want to count. No. And the little kids that listen to this, their name is Melissa. Their name is Aaron. Their name is Alberto. <laughs> to lift things up just ever so slightly. Just slightly. Because we can't end on that. From the very beginning, the architecture, the piers, the canals, the colors, the murder, <laughs> they were irresistible to the newborn film industry that was centered a single digits worth of miles away. Mm -hmm. So why go all the way to Italy when there's a Venice right down the street? So the film history of Venice is worth mentioning just because it's lasted for so long. In 1910, the first short film was shot in Venice called Never Again, and it starred Mary Pickford. Oh, that Pickford will she not She pulled stop. herself away from the chili burgers and the ice cream sundaes. All right, we'll film it. <laughs> That's exactly what she sounded like. <laughs> Buster Keaton filmed the cameraman mm -hmm. there. A few Our Gangs were filmed there, as well as some Keystone Cops, Harold Lloyd movies. Charlie Chaplin's first appearance as the Little Tramp was in Venice in 1904 in Kid Auto Races at Venice. There were so many movies being filmed there at this time that in 1915, the local businesses tried to ban filming in Venice because they were interfering with the pedestrians. Grease was filmed in Venice, LA Story, some Twilight Zones, Get Smart, The Mod Squad, Nightmare on Elm Street. Now for callbacks, Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Heat. Oh. Maybe most famously, since we were talking about Wells, Orson Welles <laughs> used Venice as the centerpiece of Touch of Evil. Oh, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger's production company has offices in Venice, as well as Roger Corman. Joel Silver, who is the producer of The Matrix, he moved his company's offices into the old Venice post office, which houses the famous New Deal mural of the history of Venice. Hmm. Interesting. Also interesting. Yeah. The whole history of Venice kind of it revolves around the word sentiment. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Sentiment and harsh facing of reality. It's okay. A fire will bring all that down. And like a phoenix, <laughs> it'll rise and get burned again and again and again and again. There's a lot of stuff about Venice that we, we just didn't have time to get yeah. into in detail. Dogtown. Dogtown, we didn't mention. It's the birth of extreme sports, pretty much. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Eh, I also wanted to listen mention. Listen to some other podcasts. You don't listen to this anyway. It's funny that Venice is such a weird pocket because you have Santa Monica in the north, and below that is Marina del Rey, which are both kind of ritzy areas, and you have this small pocket, which, yeah, there's gentrification, but it still has that element. That boardwalk's never going to change. They can, like, force you to get a permit to, to be there. But I was there not too long ago. You were there recently. Mm -hmm. It's going to remain like that weird Venice element. Oh, my God. I, twice I was walking and someone would just yell something weird like, Dachshund! And I would look over <laughs> and then they'd say, Marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> I went with my dad recently because he was giving – because, like I said, my family's originally from Venice or that side of my family anyways. So he was like, giving me a tour of all that stuff. We saw the house where the Linden sisters were born, and we spent an hour trying to figure out who Lawrence uh, Welk was. <laughs> and uh, But we walked on the boardwalk for a bit, and there were so many tourists, so many people who were like, I don't know if they chose that over Santa Monica, but they, they, like, Venice was a stop. Venice continues to be a place that people come to. I don't wonder if the way I romanticize Coney Island is the way East, you know, people in the East romanticize yeah. Venice Beach. Well, no, they don't care about Los Angeles. They really but, don't. But it is an equivalent. It's if someone's visiting from out of town, you're going to take them to Venice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Venice, uh, Coney Island Pacific, which is a, I found 
uh, it's it's it has so many pictures and it's so neat looking. No. And then if you go too far in the book, you find the oil fields. You're like, oh yeah, <laughs> don't go past page forty-seven. <laughs> you won't like it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish there was something that fun. Yeah, still there, there, there. It's mostly just uh, hobos with shaky knives asking mm. you where you parked. Oh well, nowhere because it's so hard to park. Let's, let's go to Whole Foods. <laughs> where everything is exactly how I want it. <laughs> Overpriced and sold by white power people. <laughs> Tell them the email address because I don't remember it. Oh, you can email us at uh, ally.meekly at gmail.com. Tell, us about, tell them about the website because I don't remember it. The website is allymeekly.tumblr.com. Please uh, check it out. We'll have as many pictures as possible of everything we talked about. Listen to our voices. We'll say, turn to, to page two of our Tumblr blog, post 14. And like that's what the shoots to shoots look, ride looks like. And go on iTunes and leave us a review because it's the only way that we can survive. We need as much validation as possible, so please. It's going to take more than five stars to validate this. I need at least a 12-star system. So that's been another long, excessively long episode of LA Meekly. Thank you for skimming through it. (laughs) Thanks for coming straight to the end. And that has been LA Meekly, walking for Dippy Dips since 2013. You know it's 2014, right? But we started in 2013. I like you. Yep. I like you. Mm